I'm Jason Bailey-Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting, conversations on contemporary art and culture in Los Angeles and beyond. Today's guest is Jason Revoke. This interview is the essence of what this entire show was created to be, talking about the choices people make to get to where they are today, not letting those events in life determine where you end up, but doing that yourself by the choices you make to get there. A majority of this interview is spent talking about Jason's past uh, up until where he is today. I want to make this perfectly clear. The reason that this interview took place is because of what Jason's doing today, not because of what his past was. I saw the work he was making in the studio and was immediately pulled to it. This guy is the real deal. He is all in. He is an incredible artist and just an all-around really nice guy. So without further ado, here's Jason. Jason. Hello, Jason. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thank you for coming on, man. We met recently. I didn't realize what a big deal you were before we actually met in terms of how many people knew you. You have a rich history in Los Angeles and around the country as a graffiti artist. I guess so. Well, this is true. Yeah. For me, though, we met through Instagram. Uh Uh-huh. And I think it was one of those things where you actually followed me before I followed you and I went and I was like, who is this person? <laughs> and then I, I looked and I was like, Oh shit. Like you had a, like a shit ton of followers. And you're like, why, what is this guy doing? And I went down through your stuff and I saw your work, but I still didn't realize I didn't do the research to figure out your history as a graffiti artist and what that was. And then recently I wrote you and I said, Hey, do you want to exchange studio visits? Because I had seen the stuff you had been putting onto Instagram and I wanted to see it in person. We had a great studio visit. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it, and that's that's not something I I typically do. I mean, you might. I've only been in that new studio for six, seven months, and I think you you're one of like a handful of people I've well, even. Had thank you for studio. having me over. It's yeah, really it was my kind. pleasure. I enjoyed it. I mean, and that's why I'm here right now. I, I enjoyed it very much. The conversation, all that. I have a bunch of different sort of aspects of your career as a graffiti artist, but the community that you grew up in. I want to hear about your life, and I guess maybe we just start at the beginning. You're originally from... Well, I was born in uh, the Riverside area, and I grew up, I, I use that term loosely because I, I really don't really have any real roots anywhere, but I, I grew up kind of floating around the Inland Empire and Phoenix and the, and the suburban areas of Phoenix. What was, the, what was the impetus for that? Just family life? I mean, my father grew up in the military, so he moved around all the time, and I think so. That, that's a life he knew. Yeah, and I think that you know, and my parents got divorced early when I was young, so I was like bouncing back and forth between parents. And so you I, weren't living with one over the other. Well, I was. Well, when my mother left my father, she took me with him, yeah. and she with, with her, and I think I was five at the time, and then I was bouncing back in in between the two of them, and then I think at around seven years old, I went to go live with my father permanently. Was he in Phoenix, or where was he? Or? At the time, they were in Phoenix when they got divorced. My mother left and took me with her back to Riverside. And then I would go back and forth from Riverside to Phoenix. And then when I was seven, I went to go live with my father full time in Phoenix. Yeah. You know, from that point forward, like I never started the school year at a school, finished at that, the, the school year at that school. Like That's I, intense, especially that age. As I'm older now and I spend so much time alone by myself and, you know, in the studio working, I, a lot of that time, I spend just kind of like reflecting back on my life. 
the decisions that you know I've made to kind of get here, it's starting to make a lot more sense now. I I never like I never had friends really. Like I never had like a group of friends because I was always the new kid everywhere I went and I would show up somewhere and be the the weirdo on the outside who, looking who, in Yeah, who was totally out of place and didn't fit into any of the little boxes there and and I just always kind of did my own thing. So when did you start getting into graffiti? When I was 13, my father left Phoenix and went back to Riverside when I was like 12 going on 13 and we moved back to this area river uh, we moved to the, we were living with my uncle my stepmother and my little sister were still in Phoenix and my dad and I went to Riverside and we were living with my staying with my uncle and we were in this area of Riverside where there was this gang Casablanca I was just I think I was in sixth grade and that was when I got my introduction to like gang culture <laughs> and I started getting jumped every day after school and you know, but I was seeing all this graffiti around the neighborhood, and I had no idea what it was. Or was or, it gang graffiti? Or it not? was gang graffiti, yeah. And I had no idea what it really was, or who the people were doing it, or what it kind of represented. But I was really, I was really just drawn to it. There was something there that was really interested me, and I was really curious about it. And that's how I kind of started started doing graffiti myself. You know, and then I, and then I got a crash course real fast. Started learning who these people were and what did it you, was. Well, the gang stuff, right? But yeah. did you run into like because when we spoke in the studio and we 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 hung out today a little bit, this idea of community and sort of family runs uh-huh. in the culture of the graffiti artists. Yeah, very much so. Right. And it's a tight knit community. At least it was then. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about now. Yeah, it still is now. You, yeah. you still have the group, right? Sure. But, so was that that connection to community was that maybe a draw since you didn't have that family unit or the the I guess you had the family unit you didn't have the community at school. No, no I, I think that all that all that all kind of happened later. It did. Um, yeah, I started I started just kind of like sneaking out of my house at night and like stealing oh, cans, right? spray paint out of my neighbor's garage and and sneaking out and like spraying on walls. I was doing everything by myself. Did you go? You didn't go with people. No, no, not at first, and then. Really, that was maybe the, yeah, you know, that makes some sense. Maybe that was the first time that I really started kind of like having a connection with other kids. It was you your know? way in. Yeah. I think that some of the other kids that I went to school with at this time, they started realizing maybe that this weird graffiti popping around was me. Was you? Yeah. And, and maybe that was the first time I had any kind of like real peer acceptance and yeah. like kind of got semi accepted into a group, you know, but I was always like that kind of outsider. Were they doing graffiti too or not? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you know, maybe that maybe that was my first kind of social acceptance or something. I don't know, you know. So when you were doing this early stuff, do you have pictures of the early stuff that you did? I had I had photos of everything. I, I did a pretty good job of documenting the early stuff, but you know, my house has been raided by police so many times that they... I want to get into this too. This is insane to me. In, yeah. An aspect of it, I feel very uneducated in all things of this genre. And I had said this to you earlier, you're going to have to school me on all this shit. But like, <laughs> there's a disproportionate amount of things that have happened to you in your life that are negative based on your art mm-hmm. compared to someone in who I, I've only known a certain aspect of the art world. And this difference between those two sort of worlds is, is so drastic. It's just very interesting to me. And I want to get more into that. Mm-hmm. So... You're in Phoenix then when you started doing this or not? No, no, in the Riverside area. This was back in Riverside. Yeah, yeah. Did you end school in Riverside or where? As much school as I... School as I did it, you graduate or not? No, I didn't graduate high school. I didn't go to college. I, I have no 
formal education in, in art or no post, you know, high school education. I, I went to an art school, fast forwarding here a bit, but I, I was in the Riverside area until I was about 16 or 17. We still argue about it to this day, but my dad and my stepmom kicked me out when I was 15. They, they claim they were left on my own. But Is that right? Yeah, I was kicked. I've been on my own since I was 15 years old. But 16, 17, my dad left, left Riverside and moved to Nashville, Tennessee. My father and I were really, really very close. He's, he's like my best friend. You know, we really we probably didn't speak for maybe like a year. Once he moved there, he he you know he wanted to kind of build a bridge. And how old were you? I was I was sixteen or seventeen at the time. So you'd been out of the house for two years or yeah, a year and a half or something. Yeah, yeah. So I ended up moving back to Nashville. I'm moving to Nashville. Did you move in with him? Yeah, to go live with my father. Graffiti at this point, graffiti was my life. That's really all I cared so about. So where did you go for like the the when you were fifteen, you were out of the house. Where did you go live? Uh, you had to, I had to be creative, you know, I had to like, you know, meet. Were you homeless or not? Yeah, I was homeless. You know, I slept in parks a couple nights, but yeah. I figured out quickly, like, you know, getting good with, with some girls and they'll sneak me in their window and I could crash in their room at night or our friends, you know, they had cool parents that would let me stay there. And then my mother and I have always had like, not a traditional mother son relationship. So you know, I started kind of reconnecting with my mother, and she lived out there in the area. So I would go and I would go stay with my mother. What were you sometimes. doing for money? How did you live? I was just doing what I had to Making do. Making ends meet. Yeah, I was just doing. You know, I was just a kid using the skills I the skills <laughs> I had to do what I had to do. You know, and the, you know, and that's pretty much been my life all the way up until like somehow I managed to. So when you moved to Nashville, how long were you down there? I moved to Nashville when I was six, it was sixteen, seventeen. I moved out there and I, I was, I thought that that was it. Like, like at that point in my life, like graffiti was all I really cared about. And I thought going there was like a death sentence for yeah, me. Like course. that was going to be it. And then, but you did it anyway. I did. Yeah. And like you for know, your dad, a big part of the kind of turmoil between my father and I's relationship was me doing graffiti. You know, I started getting arrested, started getting arrested for stealing, started getting arrested for graffiti. And, you know, I remember there was this one time I was 16, I think. The police caught me doing graffiti on the freeway, and uh, they called my dad. It was like, you know, 3 in the morning. They called my dad to come get me, and, you know, my dad, he works. He's got to get up in the morning and go to work. So, this you know, he's, he's probably supposed to wake up for work in like an hour after he got this phone call. He had to come down to like 3.30 in the morning and get me from the police station, and I wanted to stay there. <laughs> I was more afraid of my dad than being in jail. And I remember my dad, he, you know, he came in, they called my name and he came and got me. And as soon as he got me into the parking lot, he started whooping my ass in the parking lot. The, these police were pulling into the parking lot and they seen this guy beating, beating this, the shit out of these teenagers' kid. ass. And they like jumped out their car with guns drawn. Oh, Jesus. And uh, and uh, they're telling my dad to stop. And my dad was like, fuck you. This is my kid. Uh, you know, if I'm going to put my hands on him, that's my business. You, you or nobody's going to tell me what to do. And they're like, sir, you know, please, you got to calm down. You got to calm down. And and they're like, what's going on here? They're like, this fucking asshole's out doing graffiti at 2 o'clock in the morning. I got to get up to go to work in the morning. And, and, you know, he's got me down here picking him up to get out of jail. And they're like, oh, as soon as they heard, like, graffiti. They were like, like beat, a, his, beat his ass? They're like, actually, do you want us to give you a room in the back? Like, we could leave you guys alone where you could have to do this. And, you know, no shit. Yeah, yeah. But my dad calmed down. And that led to, you know, me no longer living with my father. So, so my dad hated graffiti. He, he wanted nothing to do with it. But, you know, like I said, our relationship was damaged. You know, we hadn't been close for a while. And when I moved to Nashville, he was really trying to, like, reconnect with me. And, is, 
you know, circumstance of the universe throws these bizarre things at you. You know, he picks me up from the airport and we're driving through downtown and I and I like look over off the freeway and I see this like incredible, massive, huge piece off the freeway, which is the last thing in 1993 or four. You thought you'd see there. I never in a million years thought I would see graffiti in Nashville, Tennessee. I mean, this was back, this was obviously before the internet. This was back when graffiti really kind of only existed on the coasts, you know what I mean? And and even along the coast in limited capacities. Like you have like LA, New York, maybe Chicago was in the conversation. And there was in San Francisco. And really graffiti wasn't really happening as far as graffiti writers were concerned anywhere else. So how did you learn about graffiti in general? How did you explore and figure out that world and what was happening in all these places? The first time I saw graffiti was probably the movie Beat Street. Oh, yeah. yeah, you know, my cousin, I had an older cousin who was older than me. He was into breakdancing and like this movie, you know, he couldn't stop talking about this movie Beat Street. And we went and saw Beat Street and, you know, they're painting, you know, Rainbow, they're painting graffiti. And I just remember being so, so captivated by that, you know, because I was into like drawing and, you know, I knew nothing about art. Like I, art was not a conversation in my family's home. Nobody in my and my family went to college. Nobody had a, had any kind of education. We never went to a gallery or a museum. I, I didn't go to a museum. The first time I went to a museum, I was well into my 20s, was the Barry McGee show. We talked about this. Yeah. yeah. So so anyways, I remember being really, really kind of struck by graffiti in that movie. And then later, I, I, I met these two uh, in Phoenix, actually, before, I, before I, I moved back to California. I met these two Puerto Rican kids from New York. And uh, the older brother had like some black books and sketchbooks, and they were into rap music. They they introduced me to hip hop. You know, this was probably 1985 or six. I remember the cra- uh, Fat Boys crushing yeah. album cover. Yeah, they had yeah. a big piece on the front of the cr- of the car. You know, crushing. And I remember seeing that in, in the movie Beat Street. And and then these these two same brothers, they had a, a copy of Spray Cane Art, one of the books I, I told you about at the show earlier. Yeah. We and went to, we should say this, we just went to an exhibition that was here in town. Yeah, be, Beyond the Streets, put together by Roger Gassman. Go see it. Yeah, it was <laughs> great. Roger, the time this comes out. Yeah, Roger gave us an, an amazing tour of the space today and the volume of work, but this is what struck me. There is a ton of contemporary artists in this who started out as graffiti artists as yeah. well, too. Yeah. That you wouldn't even, Eddie Martinez, and I mean, you can name a bunch of them. I don't, I don't know if a lot of people want to be outed, you know. But well, they're <laughs> outed because they're the in the show. The in the closet. They're yes. in the exhibition. Sure, sure. Sayer Gomez. Uh, I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of people, I think, in contemporary art today who, well, not, I don't think I know, who were once graffiti artists or writers and, and now have like a, a contemporary art career. Well, we talk about, th- there's this thing that when I was doing research for you to come on and I was looking at articles that people had written about you or they're just talking about your work, there's two things that come up. It's either something where you were arrested doing graffiti <laughs> somewhere, right? Or a lawsuit or something like that. But yeah. the, the second thing that sort of struck me is not being necessarily fair either is that every, when they talk about your artwork, your artwork is always in terms of overcoming the boundaries of what street art is to uh-huh. get to a place where you're in contemporary art and it is legitimized. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's sort of bullshit that this idea that one thing being legitimate and the other thing not being legitimate, and I guess that's where I was getting at, where mm-hmm. one is prosecuted and probably is a tangible effect because you're on you're writing on other people's property, right? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So that there's the the law it's aspect of yeah, it. You yeah, the crime. our culture, our society, you know, everything is structured around things are 
important if you can place a monetary value on value it. systems yeah right? you know if, if something is a commodity that can be bought and sold and then it's important and valuable if something doesn't there's no opportunity for anybody else to benefit or profit off of off of something then it's you know it's trash it's not worth well we say this i brought up the aspect though that the 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 performance art is maybe that one thing right where it's legitimized and still not tangibly valuable to have that item in a collection or something. Yeah, but I think that's surrounded with an air of without a doubt. Institutions educate, you know, high yeah. education, you yeah. know, graffiti is just a bunch of out, juvenile delinquent assholes writing on on other people's shit. So nobody cares about it or, or sees anything valuable or interest so, or, or worth recognizing. So it. what do you think that transition was then where graffiti starts becoming legitimized where as as a commodity? I mean, I think graffiti's been present in popular culture since graffiti is been on the street you know i think that what's happening now is it's just uh you know people are growing up in positions of influence in in popular culture that have grown up around graffiti and interested in graffiti so they're you know it, it's been present and and had a huge influence on popular culture f- forever i think that now it's just maybe starting to get recognized um you know but but that's part of the problem too is you know when i started doing graffiti i never had any like fantasy or, or like idea of of it being anything other than writing graffiti you were going to make money off it yeah I mean, there that, was in fact there you knew for a fact you weren't going to make money off <laughs> of it. i had i had i had completely accepted the fact that i was going to be a loser my entire life and i was never going to well, have any money it, the, the only way i was going to have anything if i was going to go out and steal it because it sure as hell was going to happen you know as a kids too walls. we like we, we rebel against our fucking parents and we're always doing a the thing they don't want us to do just to sort of egg them on sometimes a little bit. Yeah. We went off of this and there's so many ways we can keep going into what has happened in terms of making money off of graffiti, but also being persecuted because of the graffiti. But I want to talk a little bit more about what happened to you after Nashville. So you, and I don't want to jump off this subject. You saw that graffiti on the side of a wall or something. You were driving down. Did you meet that artist? Yeah. So, so I mean, yeah, this is the story of my, my father and I just kind of bending our relationship as, you know, my, I went from getting my, ass beat by my dad for getting arrested for doing graffiti but he saw how excited i was at seeing this piece off the freeway oh he knew right away yeah i mean i i I talked i i talked about it with him he saw how interested i was and how excited i was about this it wasn't just to piss him off or to like to irk somebody it was a real thing no i mean i you you loved it yeah i'm genuinely interested or excited about something i'm not gonna like you know, hide it from my dad because. But you know what's funny about that is he probably never had the opportunity to see you in that element. Yeah. Before that time. This is true. Sure. So the next day, he, without him saying anything to me, he went there. Really? And yeah, he went there and he went and saw the piece for himself. He remembered where it was off the freeway and he went and found it. That's huge. And he went inside the building because it was such a big, elaborate production on the building. My There's dad. There's no way they didn't allow it to. Happen. Exactly. So my father went in there and he asked, you know, hey, listen. I seen this painting on the side of your building. I want to, you know, try to get some information if you guys know who did it. It was a photo studio, a photo reproducing. This was before like everybody had like scanners at home and this Yeah, was, so they're blowing shit up. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. So he went in and, and spoke with one of the employees and asked them and they're like, "Actually, I think the owner's son did that. Oh, let me go grab him for you." And uh this woman came out and shook my dad's hand and said, "Hey, how are you going? I, I hear that you're inter- interested in the painting on the side of our, of our building and my dad told her that, yeah, you know, my son does graffiti. He was really impressed by the piece in the side of your building. And I just wanted to come in here and try to find out some more information on who did it. 
she told him that it was her son and that he lived in L.A., but he was actually coming back to Nashville in a couple of weeks. And she gave my dad her son's phone number. Oh, that is cool. And my dad uh, came home that afternoon and said, yeah, remember that burner you saw on the freeway? I, <laughs> I got the guy's phone number, asshole. Don't be a pussy. Call him. <laughs> I got you the guy's number. Don't be a pussy. Call him. So I, I was like, I was 17, I think. I was like nervous as hell. Like, of course, right? Him, and it's a, it's a beeper number. So I put my number in. Oh, the, shit, dude. <laughs> and the guy calls back. And uh, he's, he was this guy, Tax. T-A-C-K-Z, Tax. Is he known or not? Uh, definitely in the 90s he was. He yeah. was he was part of a, a crew here in L.A. that was a very influential crew, this crew AM7, which I ended up ultimately becoming a part of through meeting him. But, yeah, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, uh, you know I live in L.A., but I'm actually going to come out to Nashville and hang out there for a little bit. You know, we should meet up. And, and this guy was much older than me. I think he was like 23, 24 at the time. I was young. I was 17. Isn't it amazing what the age difference does? If somebody's 24, I remember hooking up with a girl when I was like, <laughs> she was 25 and I was like, I slept with this older woman. <laughs> the big deal. That, especially it's a at huge that time deal. In your yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, he, 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 you know, he tells me he, where he's going to be in a couple of weeks at this like street fair in downtown Nashville. So I ride the bus out there and I get off the bus and I'm walking through downtown. I'm walking to this place, this address he gave me where he's going to be. And I walk past this alley and I catch out of the corner of my eye. A, a dude looks like he's like bending down, catching a tag on the dumpster in the alley. And I, and I come back and I look and this guy's like six foot five. Oh, he's huge. Uh, yeah. Like <laughs> just the most ridiculous looking person anywhere. But like in Nashville, Tennessee, this guy looks so out of place. He's like six foot five wearing like a baby blue Adidas tracksuit. With like uh, he had, he had like a hole cut in the top of his hat with like a blonde like ponytail sticking straight out. Was the he top. a white dude? A white dude, all gold teeth, diamond in his front tooth. <laughs> I'd never seen anybody like this in my life. And like you know, the guy was like a grown man. I mean, he was like twenty. You know, he was in his mid twenties. And I and I walked down the alley and I hit him up. I'm like, you know, because I could tell he was doing a tag. And I was like, hey man, you, you know, what do you what do you write? Are you a writer? And he's like, yeah, you know, I write Bino. I'm from Miami. And like it was just this crazy thing. Like I moved to Nashville, Tennessee. You know, I meet and he's on his way. He's friends with a guy, Tax. Oh. He just came, he just rode the bus up there from Miami. Holy he's moly. going to go meet Tax too. And these guys are friends. They've known each other forever. So I'm like the what are the chances? Exactly. So I'm like the 17 year old kid from Riverside. I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. I meet this like older graffiti writer from Miami. We're going to go meet this guy, Tax, who's like from Nashville, but he's been living in LA forever. And they're already friends. So I ended up meeting these guys, and these guys totally took me under their wing. Like, they taught me so much. We're like three fish out of water, basically, in Nashville, Tennessee. And we started, you know, painting graffiti there. And, I mean, they had, nothing like this existed there at the time. So Did The guy went back to L.A., though, and the guy left for Miami, too, or not? No. So they ended up, we kind of quickly formed a, a, a bond, and we all hung out there for about a year. Oh, that's a while. Yeah. And Bino left, and he went back to Miami, went, and Tax and I left, and we moved to L.A. I moved to L.A. with so him. So that's how you got out here? Yeah, the first time, yeah. Because of your dad? Yeah. <laughs> but talk about a 180, right? Yeah. From beating your ass in the parking lot to helping you figure out. Yeah. And now, I mean, he ended up, he ended up being, like, my biggest supporter, you know, with graffiti. Yeah, it, it's crazy how it works out, but... um. But yeah, yeah, that's how that happened. And then but think I'll, about this in this term, too, and I'm sorry to interrupt. No. But like the idea, though, that you were going to take a chance and go. It's like it's not only him; it's you taking the chance of going down to Nashville after you had that fallout with him, uh-huh. and like wanting to fix that and repair that relationship too. It takes two people. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, also I wasn't, 
I was headed down a real dark dead end path, you know, being on my own, living out, you know, as a kid, dude, you don't know any better. Yeah. And then, you know, Riverside's a real shithole. You know, everybody I knew was, was really strung out on drugs bad and just in, like progressively getting into like really bad stuff. And it was, it was good timing. I needed to get away. To have the that. foresight to even do that at that age is pretty remarkable. I don't know if I had, I don't, I'm, I wouldn't, you're giving me, you're giving me way too, too much, much credit. credit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I like, I think that I've gotten I've gotten really lucky being impulsive most of my life. So that's what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. You know, I stayed out there for a while. And we did that, and then I moved to LA. I stayed in LA for about a year. Then I went back there. I was there for a little while. Then I went to Miami in like '95. I spent like the summer in Miami, which was crazy. And and you know, I had. Did you hook up with your friend back down there too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and then I, I went back to Nashville, and then I saved up a little bit of money working doing construction. You know, I was either going to buy, like, a car. I mean, at this point, I'm, like, 18, and I don't even have a driver's license. I've never had a car or anything. How did you get around? What did you do? Especially in Nashville. I mean, I'd, I hung out with these older dudes. That drove you around all the Yeah, days. you know. And, and my, my buddy Bino, he moved to Atlanta to go to the school, the Art Institute. So me, uh, so me and another guy who I ended up being friends with in Nashville were like, hey, fuck it. Let's go, let's go check out Atlanta. Like, the Art Institute wasn't even, like, I want to go to. It wasn't Ad on your radar at all. No, for me, it was just like a means to like go move to Atlanta because Atlanta was way cooler than Nashville. You know, I, I took my GED in Nashville so that I would have so that to, to be able to go to school. Yeah. And I got like a really high score on my GED. So they gave me like a like some kind of Pell Grant or something. It was really? Like five grand to go to go to college. That's so amazing. I, yeah. But I was going to school there and like, you know, my dad didn't have money. He couldn't pay my tuition. So I was having to work full time. I was working as, a, as like a line cook at this restaurant in Phipps Plaza, which is like a really upscale mall in Buckhead that was right down the street from the... Yeah. So I, I, would be, I would be there working until close, like 2.30 at night. I'd have to ride the train home, try to get my school projects done to be at school at 8 o'clock yeah. the next day. I mean, it just... It, I it didn't get to work. After the second semester, I just... I had to quit. I couldn't do it. Um, but I ended up staying there in Atlanta for a year. That was what it was. And then after that year was up, I moved back to L.A. And I moved, to, I moved back to L.A. at the end of 96, beginning of 97. And then I stayed here. Uh, I stayed here for maybe a year. Then I moved to San Francisco. My friend Saber and I moved to San Francisco. I lived in San Francisco for three years, right up until like Christmas Eve or something in '99. And then I moved back to LA. I was here in LA for a while. Moved back to Nashville for like a year. Left Nashville right after 9/11 and moved back to LA. I was in LA until. 2011, and then that's that's when all like my legal problems really started. Okay, so let's hit yeah. on that real quick. In 2011, you had an arrest, and you got hit with a bail, like $320,000. Well, I got arrested before that, actually. Okay, so tell me tell me this story. I had been here in L.A. doing what I've always done. You painting, were known. Yeah, I was painting graffiti, and I was I was I was doing I was doing it the best I, that I ever did it so at that time. Did you have a you'd been you'd been around the block? People had known you as a graffiti artist mm -hmm. and your work had been seen all over so revoke was all over la yeah i had figured out this kind of like because i had a lot of friends that have been doing graffiti a lot longer than me a lot of these guys are like they've gone to prison and done like real real jail for, time graffiti. for graffiti yeah and i figured out i figured out that there was kind of like this system it was like if you don't mess with caltrans property and you don't mess with city property you don't get and fucked. you don't mess with mta property as long as you're painting private property, most of that stuff doesn't even like that. At least this is the way that it was then. A police report doesn't get made on it. And, Were people uh, not calling cops? Or the cops couldn't give a shit. Well, no. It's just that 
you know, the, the police have always had their way of like kind of documenting and building cases against graffiti writers, but most of it was all, you know, state funded or, or, run, or county or city state funded and run kind right. of entities and like the graffiti that was their problem all got kind of put into a case file where they would steadily build a big case against you. Against one individual. Exactly. So I never messed with Caltrans property. I never messed with MTA property and I never messed with city property. And that, and I was able to like do a lot without ever like getting my house raided and really kind of making a big problem for myself. But then this, this guy became city attorney, this guy, Carmen Trutanich. And he, uh, who were you talking about earlier? Yeah. He figured out quickly that like, and this was as the internet was really kind of becoming what it is today, who the more prominent kind of names and the kind of like leaders in the culture were. And you were one of those. And I, and I and I became you know his kind of biggest target. And I mean he he went on the news talking about me, saying that you know I had done over a million dollars damage in L.A. And he made it kind of his mission. At to, this time, you were part of a crew here. Yeah. And what was the crew? Uh, MSK. So what MSK did, and AWR. What did, what did that stand for? What was each one of those? Uh, Mad Society Kings, Angels Will Rise. It, it was started in, in the West Side by my buddy Casey Clips uh, in like 1988. So what were part of the crew? What was the point of the crews? Were they a group of individuals who were like-minded and would go out together and like tag shit? Or like what was the point? Yeah, more or less. I mean, especially here in L.A., you, you, you have this like real kind of gang culture. You got your group, and it's like us against them. And was it was there a rivalry between the crews? Oh yeah, I mean absolutely. Like any graffiti is like it's very much like a there's a lot of testosterone in graffiti, you know. Yeah. So there's a lot of competition, and it's a lot of young dudes. Yeah, a lot of young dudes, you know, that act like assholes, and you know the the competition and the and the kind of uh, the macho aspect of it is a big part of it, and heated element of it is what really kind of pushes it forward and and like keeps it moving, you know, instead of. I can get going. I could go forever on that. But, but anyways, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, especially to paint graffiti in L.A. Now it's like realistic. You could be like kind of a guy doing it on your own. But in the 90s, you had to kind of be part of a, of a crew. So it's just natural for like guys. Why? Like, well, it's it's just a vi very violent atmosphere. Yeah, it's very competitive. You didn't want to be on your own. No, it's a very violent, competitive atmosphere. And I mean, within graffiti writers. Yeah. yeah you yeah. know, what I mean, like in the 90s, like graffiti writers were getting like killed by each other over graffiti all the time that's it was, fucked up it was a very yeah it was intense you know and, and that's really what separated la graffiti from the rest of of the world and that's why how violent it was yeah I so for a long time writer you know all the european guys they would all make pilgrimage in new york the mecca of graffiti they would they would go to san francisco but none of them would come here they're because all, of the violence yeah they're all scared to come here and so would that did that give you a little more credibility then because you were here doing that stuff. No, that time? I think that it. I think that it made the scene here, especially in the '90s, when like all the graffiti magazines and stuff really, uh, when this like media kind of emerged, where like every before everybody used to communicate, like you you'd pen pal with other graffiti writers and you would you would trade photos and send photos, and that's how like well, that's how it spread. Yeah, that's how that's how it spread, and okay. that's how the writers would kind of communicate with one another across cities. And then when the magazines really started, like it, it was really because of Tower Tower Books. When Tower Books became this kind of like place that would carry like independent zines and magazines, all of a sudden there became this market for like a few kind of media savvy graffiti guys. They started, you know, Roger Gassman was one of these people. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden there started being all these graffiti magazines that would that would kind of act as like a like a catalog what was going on in the scene at that time. And people from started all over collecting the world. them to understand yeah. what was happening in all these different regions. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, there was one graffiti magazine from L.A., Can Control. You know, there was like seven from New York. 
There was uh, you know, a, bun a bunch of European ones and like this whole kind of global conversation that started happening about the scene. L.A. wasn't really present because so, everyone was scared to really kind of come here. So was that city attorney looking at you guys more directly because of the violence within the community? No, not? not at all. He was, he was I, just a dick. I, I was doing a lot of graffiti, but at that time, too, like I was kind of going through a transition in my life where I was trying to step away from like the lifestyle that I used to live. And I was trying to I was trying to figure out a way to like to be who I am and support myself off of it. You know, I, a lot of the older guys on my crew, they were graphic designers. They had clothing companies. They they did. Uh, How do you make a living? Yeah, they did, you know, art department stuff for like movie and TV and commercial production. You know, they 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 took like the creative aspect of who they were and, and figured out a way to like to, to get by in this world to make and, a living. Yeah. I was trying to figure out how uh, I could be me and and like continue to be me and not have to work a nine to five job because yeah. you can't be out painting graffiti till five o'clock in the morning and get up and go to Good work the next day. You know, how old were you? Uh, at this time, uh, I don't know. Mid twenties or what? Yeah, something. No, my thirties. Oh, you were a bit older. Yeah, my thirties. And so you've been I, doing this for a long time by this time. Yeah, I mean, I, I started painting graffiti when I was thirteen. And I'm yeah. forty one now. You know, so I've I've spent almost all my life doing this. You know, so so the point is, I started doing this kind of like commercial crossover stuff. I started doing a lot. I mean, a lot of stuff that kind of haunts me to this day, and I'm really embarrassed of. But I was just <laughs> trying to figure out. I was just trying to figure out how to make a living legitimately and, and keep painting. You know, so I started my I started putting my face out there, and I, I started doing like commercial work where like I wasn't hiding anymore. And then at the same time, the city of LA was trying to pass this law that would hold property owners responsible for any graffiti on their business where. They would once the graffiti was recognized by the city, they would give basically a citation to the property owner, and they had I think five days to remove it. Or Which they is would, nothing. They, yeah. yeah, or they would start getting fined after that. Is so, that because of the gang tags, or what was it? I mean, it was just because LA's LA's always hated graffiti, and LA's always been very like vigilant about trying to shut shut down graffiti and prosecuting graffiti writers. I mean, in in every other city in America, you know. You get caught doing graffiti, you get some community service, you get a fine, you get probation. Here in Los Angeles, they send you to prison. Which you is know, crazy. Yeah, I mean, I know I know guys like this this dude, Sight from South Central, he did eight years in prison for graffiti. That is crazy. My friend GK from my crew, he did three years in prison for graffiti. Siva from my crew did three years in prison for graffiti. You know, LA's always been, it's just things have always been a lot more intense and the stakes have always been a lot the higher. The crime isn't proportional for what? Yeah, the the sentences exactly. So um, I started putting myself out there. I started showing my face. I I, I started really kind of doing too much, and this Carmen Tutanich guy t took it upon himself to kind of like make me the you know poster child for for his anti graffiti campaign. And you know they're trying to make my life hell. I was at that time I was doing pretty well. I had like a really nice condo in the hills. But what's what's that statement though? Like you you were doing too much. Like for a normal person trying to make a living, that doesn't come into play. Yeah, but but when I'm trying to make a living off of really kind of, I guess, for lack of a better term, being a criminal. Yeah. You know, you can't be on the news talking shit about the city attorney about how and then make money about off. how like you know wrong they are for trying to like implement this new policy and, and hold property owners accountable for the graffiti on there. I can't, you know, like I went on KCAL showing my face as revoke. 
you know, while I'm also probably one of the most active graffiti writers in the city saying, fuck you, city of Los Angeles, yeah. you can't do this to property owners. Yeah, yeah. That really, like, I really, I really, like, sealed my fate with that. So, uh, <laughs> so anyways, they, you know, they raided my house and they stole a lot of, they stole a bunch of stuff from me. You and, one, back. and one of the things that, yeah, one of the things that they did was they destroyed all my photographs and negatives. So for, you know, all my stuff from the 90s and the early 2000s before I started. What do you mean they destroyed it? They destroyed it there or like later? Well, I had, I, you know, I was lucky enough to have a, a really good attorney, which in large part, I'm, I owe, the, owe a huge debt to Shepard Ferry. You know, he made that possible. He did a print. He gave me all the money from his print. And I Is was, that right? Yeah, I was able to. Yeah, he's a great guy. He's, he's always been very supportive. And, uh, you know, he did this print and he gave, gave all the, the, the money he made from this print. To me, to be able to pay for my for my lawyer. legal fees, yeah, and I, you know, I was able to get a good lawyer, which makes all the difference in the world. He was able to, you know, negotiate with them to give me, uh, you know, after the case was settled, to give me my property back. But what the police went and did before they gave me back my hard drives is they destroyed all my prints and my photo prints and oh, my, and my negatives. Up. So that stuff that you talked about earlier, yeah, I don't have any of that stuff because it it's was sad. Yeah, it was destroyed. And bringing it, bringing it to, to where we are right now, I mean, that was a big part of, like, my motivation outside of just, like, me having ideas that didn't fit into the box of, of where I've been all this time. I had spent my entire life, I'd risked my life, I'd risked my freedom continuously every day, you know, for 20-plus years doing this work that doesn't exist. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, like, I, I finally, like, saw the value in creating works that, like, aren't going to be erased after you, you This did is them. you having a studio practice. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, around maybe 2008, 2009, I started getting really kind of just bored and, with graffiti. You know, I've been doing it for so long. It's like, how many times can I paint my fucking name? At a certain point, yeah. it just seems ridiculous. So, and I, and I started really kind of having ideas that I, that I was like excited about and I really wanted to explore outside of, you know, the, the, the small restrictive, you know, framework of graffiti. When we were having the conversation earlier, I brought up too, like from a perspective of somebody in an arts community, I think the general sense has been, oh, <laughs> those graffiti artists, they want to cash in and that's why they're they're transitioning over. And it's such a narrow perspective of what is actually happening or taking place. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean that that wasn't even that whole idea did it it was the most Nobody in their most delusional fantasy would ever have imagined being able to take graffiti and, and, and like monetize parlay, it. Yeah, monetize it. Just, it, it didn't exist. There was no precedent for that. There was nobody to follow that had kind of like forged that path. You know what I mean? It's like everybody. Shepard Ferry, Shepherd Ferry hadn't done anything yet. Well, Shepard Ferry wasn't a graffiti writer. I mean, and, and like in this, you know, Shepard Ferry is very much a legitimate street artist, but, but these, are, these are two totally different things. I mean, they get really kind of like... So tell me what the difference is. Well, the, well, graffiti is a practice... I mean, I know, like, practical terms what the difference is, but, like, in the group of individuals that are actually doing it on the street. Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I come from a school of, like, very traditional graffiti. You know, that goes back to, like, the mid-late 60s, you know, Philadelphia and New York. You would you would create a name. You would create a, a moniker or, or an identity for yourself that wasn't your name. So wait, and, re and where did Revoke come from? Revoke came from, you know, me sitting around a, a lunch table with other kids at school trying to come up with cool new names to write, okay. and and that was that. I mean, I seen Scanners, you know, and like Daryl Revoke was like a pretty awesome, oh, yeah, you know, dude. villain, but um, <laughs> that's not where it came from, you know. Yeah, that's not okay, where it came from. Okay, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, no, no, keep no, going. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and you know, there was this guy that that was my idol. Like, uh, you know, the guy, the L.A. graffiti. There was a lot of L.A. graffiti writers who were kind of the ideal graffiti writer for me that like I really looked up to and, and aspired to do graffiti. Like, like one of these dudes was Charlie, Dream. Uh, but the but you know the the guy that stood out to most of me was this guy Risk. You know, he was like for like a kid like me, he was like my. Michael. We saw his work today in that show. Yeah. He was like my Michael Jordan, you know, and his name began with an R and it ended with a K. And like, I always thought that those were the coolest looking letters, you know, and uh, I was, I've always just intuitively kind of just been drawn to like kind of symmetrical compositions. So it's almost an homage to him. Yeah. In, in, in a lot of ways. Sure. And, uh, you know, the V kind of acts like this, like axis anchor point in the middle that kind of balances out these semi-symmetrical halves. It sounded cool. It looked good when I wrote it, so that's why I picked the name. I mean, graffiti, the, the type of graffiti that I've always done is all about lettering and, and like abstract expressionism and, and all of the gestural kind of aspects of graffiti come out of a, a lettering structure in, in, a, in a way of trying to kind of like flip topography and make it your own, but still have it rooted in these kind of like laws and foundations of lettering that make sense and make it justified, you know, and that's. Graffiti, the graffiti that I come from is about creating a name, and that's what you paint. You paint your name. You, you do it as much as possible. You do it as big as possible, and you try to be as creative as you possibly can still within these kind of limits and boundaries, and that's what graffiti graffiti is. Street art is something separate that's kind of happened, depending on who you speak with, either as an offshoot, as an offspring of traditional graffiti, or happened on its own kind of parallel with graffiti, but the two have always really kind of like existed in public space, really at odds with one another. It's not really until recent years did the two worlds start kind of talking merging. to each other. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And, you know, to be quite honest with you, like Shepard Ferry is probably one of those really important kind of people that has acted as a bridge between, between street the two art communities. and graffiti. Yeah, you know, I mean, I have a lot of respect for him where I didn't really respect any other street artist because... You know, as soon as I started traveling and going, as soon as I got a passport and started going to other countries, everywhere, every city You'd I ever went work. to, he was there first. I mean, you could say whatever you want about the guy, but the guy has always been, like, active in the street. And, yeah. like, no matter where you go. Just to this day. Yeah, still to this day. No matter where you go, there he is. He's up. And he's, he's usually up, got, like, the best spots, you know. And when, that made me respect him. I lived in D.C. in early 2000s mm-hmm. during 9-11 and stuff. He tagged a, an overpass sign. Uh-huh. In D.C., it was the Andre. Yeah. But you'd see that thing driving down the highway. I still, to this day, don't know how he got up there to do <laughs> that thing. And it was yeah. right in the center of, of Washington, D.C. It was yeah. amazing. Yeah. I mean, and that was another one of the things about him that really made him kind of stand out and made people like myself recognize and respect him is because most kind of like street artists would just, they would really play it safe, really like go out there and do it on a high level of, as far as like taking physical risks, but then also like doing things that are so brash that like are really criminal. They're going to get the mean? attention of somebody and somebody's going to want to do something about it. Sure. And, and he, you know, he did it, he did it as well as any graffiti writer. So that made me respect him. So let's circle it back around uh-huh. to when they raided your house. Sure. And you had this bond of $320,000. Well, well the, actually what happened first was I had some friends from England out and they wanted, they came out to go to Coachella. So, oh, yes, so, I about that. Yeah, so we, you know, I never paid for a ticket to Coachella. I always go and figure out a way to break in and sneak in every year. <laughs> and they came out and, you know, keeping up with my tradition of like figuring out how to break in and sneak into Coachella this year, we went out there like a day ahead to kind of like do reconnaissance and figure oh. out how we we're going to sneak in the night before. 
And the, and there's you know there's this freeway exit that everybody gets off of to go to Coachella. Like if you've ever been to Coachella, like you sit in like for two hours waiting to get off this freeway exit. And there's a big wall right there in the side. So the night before Coachella, we went and painted this wall so that everybody going to Coachella would, would see it. it. Yeah. yeah, you know I, I was pretty wasted at the time when I did it, <laughs> but I never I never would have imagined that like leaving like the lid of a spray can behind would lead to me getting arrested like because I, I, your fingerprints are on it yeah like I, i've been no. like i've been going to europe and like painting trains with like you know like france and germany and england for a long time before this and these guys are always like really crazy about not leaving anything behind because they oh is that right police there will do forensics and like they'll pull like they'll pull a hair and get dna like they'll you know they'll get they'll, they'll dust shit for fingerprints and get a warrant for you that way but here in america i mean we have so much real crime police really don't have the resources to spend on something stupid like graffiti. So the idea of leaving the lid around. Yeah. But apparently in India, (laughs) these cops had the time and resources to do that. Like they literally found a lid off a Rust-Oleum can, dusted it for fingerprints, and got a warrant from my house. And like they sent like a a team of police like sit there. To L.A. Yeah, to do recon, you know, on my house for like four or five days before they actually raided my house. The amount of money spent. Exactly. To get like a tagger. Exactly. And I mean, and this, I mean, that's a whole nother conversation. We can get on, go on forever. But I mean, these dudes, like when they raided my house and they were driving me back to Indio to, to process me into their jail, they were like, they were all thanking me. Like, I haven't made this, I haven't made this much time, overtime pay Are ever. You fucking like, serious? Thank you so much. Yeah. But anyways, that, that's a whole nother story. So yeah, uh. They raided my house. They destroyed all my prints and negatives. And, you know, I've been trying to, like, hunt people down and recover all those images I lost ever since. Yeah, I feel like we've, we've finally answered your question. Well, we? no, we didn't. We got to get on to the 320. So that was the first thing. The, uh-huh. Was the Coachella thing the 320,000 or no? No, no, no. That was just a small case for me <laughs> at the time. And then so I, so I got really worried because I thought, oh, fuck, this just opened the floodgates. Now L.A. is going to come after me for sure. And is that what happened? no. Then I went to Australia. Oh, that's right. And I was doing this thing in Australia. Um, I was like, I had hooked up, you know, because I started doing all this like commercial stuff now. And I had, I, I, I'm just, it's going to take too long to get into all this. But anyways, I was doing this thing in Australia where I was basically hooked up with these like big skateboard promoters and concert promoters. And they wanted to do this big event in Australia that was kind of like an all-encompassing youth culture event or whatever. Where they're gonna have like this big skateboarding contest and a huge con. So were you doing the the ramps or what were you doing? No, I I I I had this idea. Let's do let's do like a graffiti contest. Oh, that's and, cool. Well, not really. It now I, now I think it's like the lamest, it's the lamest idea thing ever. ever. But at the time, I thought it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I so I had I had like pitched in this idea and they were down with it. So I went out there and it, this is a whole nother long story. I mean the. The promoter of this event that was like financially backing it, it turned out like she had like committed all these people to it. Like Wu Tang Clan showed up and all that. She didn't have the money to pay him. Like uh. she was bankrupt. She like tried to commit suicide while we were there. Like the whole oh thing God. fell. It was nuts. The whole thing fell apart while we were there. So like the first week I was there was spent trying to organize and make this event happen. And then when when the rug got pulled out from everybody and we we're all just kind of like there in Australia without the event to do, I was like, well, I'm here. I might as well paint. So I started painting in Australia, and I didn't. I, I failed to kind of like take into consideration like how small a country it was. So I was like, I know, admittedly, I was pretty naive and stupid. I, I was like painting, out doing shit in the street, like painting subways, doing all the stuff, and then like posting it immediately to my website. Oh. And uh, you know, they this like graffiti task force vandal squad that was there, like they were already like anticipating my arrival in this event, and like 
kind of geared up waiting to try to like catch people. So I was doing I was doing all this stuff and like I did one thing that probably wasn't in, in hindsight wasn't too smart. Like we had painted the subway and like the guards came, the guards came, like they smelled the paint from the shed and like they came rushing out while we were painting it. And like we we like had like a standoff with them. They don't have guns there, you know. So like <laughs> so it's like if they're gonna try to come at you, they gotta fight, you know. Yeah. And like and like I was with these Australian guys or like big guys, like you're like, guys, let's fight. We weren't backing down. Yeah. So I'm like taking photos of like them on the phone calling the police like in front of my panel and I was stupid I posted it on my website oh, so that dude. really pissed them off so anyways I was I you know I did I did the most while I was there and without having any issues but while I was at the airport getting ready to leave these dudes I was stupid and I like twittered like oh I can't wait to get home like going to the airport like and they were like the they were like yeah so they were waiting for me at the oh, airport guess where he is yeah I'm like at Virgin Australia like in the first class lounge like drinking like waiting to leave and I get a page like oh you know Jason Williams come to the ticket counter I'm like oh that's kind of strange you go to the ticket counter and the ticket the person at the ticket counter is like really nervous like their hands are shaking you're like what's going on they won't make eye contact with me and I'm like this is weird what's happening right I was like hey I try to lean in like make eye contact with me like, is everything okay away, what's going on like, he went to look at me, and I was like, oh, I knew right away. I just turned around, I started looking, and sure enough, these cops are, like, on the other side of the terminal watching me. They all surround me, arrest me at the airport. And that, I guess that, uh, it was a big deal. You know, it's a small country, Australia. So Lots it was, like, of news. All over the news. Like, it was, it was a big deal there. So I guess these detectives, like, were calling L.A. and, like, giving them a hard time here. Like, hey, this guy's been. Why aren't you doing anything? Yeah, this guy's been doing this. You allow over. him to do. Exactly. So when as soon as I came back to L.A., I, I was I, like, I knew that shit was going to hit the fan soon. So I did this uh, at the time I was sponsored by the spray paint company and they were doing this event, to, like promote their, this new paint that they're releasing. So I was doing this like event at a store over in mid city. And I'm, I'm like out in the back painting while these other guys all of a sudden like this is a helicopter overhead circling. Like, Fuck. Yeah. And like, you know, there's like hundreds and hundreds of kids there. Like these kids are coming up to me like, yo, I just got fucking sweated by the sheriffs outside. They're asking about you. And then the owner comes to me. He's like, hey, I don't know what to do. Like, I got these detectives in here. They're saying if I don't send you out, they're going to shut me down, this and this and that. So, I, so I'm, so i like, watching the helicopter circle ahead. And I, I kind of, like, timed it. I could tell that, like, as they flew around, there was all these palm trees. Where they kind of hit a blind spot. So I jumped the back wall. like went through these apartments. Like, I got away. You know, I, I, I got, like, a few blocks away. And I was talking to my buddy, like, hey, you, you know, you got to come pick me up. Like, they, they're here for me right now. And he's like, hey, I'm coming up the block. I told him where I was. He's like, I'm coming up the block right now. As soon as I stepped out of these apartments onto the street, like they had spotters and, and regular cars. They had, like yeah. you see me, boom, they sur surrounded me. So that, that's when all my problems kind of began in LA. So whatever, I dealt with all I dealt with all that. It was very expensive. You know, they you know, they had me on like three hundred and sixty thousand dollar bail. Ridiculous. It's the most at that time for anybody. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like I'm in there with dudes like you know, that are like convicted rapists on a second rape charge and their bail is $75,000. Yeah, it's crazy. So whatever, that happened. And, and, and then you moved to Detroit. No, no. Then then uh, <laughs> we're, the Art in the Streets show was happening at MoCA. Oh, was that before Detroit? Yeah. So so basically, like, I ended up in the, on, on probation over the whole thing. And that just gave them a free pass to just raid Maybe my house. For anything. Anytime they want. They I had I had the guy in my living room, the sergeant of this like graffiti task force, tell me he's like, you know, I, I know that at this point I'm probably not going to be able to put you in jail. He's like, but I'm going to put you out of business. I'm going to bankrupt you. He's like, he's like, you know, you're gonna, I'm going to keep arresting you. You're going to keep having to post bail. You're going to keep having to pay your lawyer and just fuck with your life. Yeah, he's like, he's like, if I can't, if I can't keep you in jail, I'm going to bankrupt you and put you out of business. So what was the intent to get you and out of that town? And that was that was these guys' real motivation. Get like, you out of town. They well, they saw that like I started kind of taking this thing that was. A crime 
and and kind of like legitimizing it. And they were really unhappy about that. So they made it their mission to, you know, like they told me, bankrupt me and put me out of business. So I I had to like move out. Of, I had a nice place in the hills. I had to move out of this. I had to like live, rent, you know, rent a room for my buddy. I couldn't have mail or anything in my name. I was having to be in hiding in my city. You know, they would still find ways to catch me slipping and arrest me. And, you know, $10,000 bail every time, more money, my lawyer. I mean, it was wearing me out. So we had this show happening at, at MoCo, and Jeffrey Deitch came, and he put the show together, my buddy Roger Gassman and Aaron Rose. It was, basically, I, I was going to finish my installation for the show, and I was moving to Detroit. So in the process of doing this, I, I, my friend Next, who, who's no longer alive, he was telling me about this. He was living in Chicago at the time. He was telling me about Detroit. I'd never been there. I flew out there. You know, it was like middle of February, you know, three feet of snow. It's freezing. It's, it's freezing, the Midwest, dude. But I loved it. It was incredible. I yeah. never, it, it just, I felt free there for the first time in a long time. And it, and it just felt like anything was possible there. And I was I instantly fell in love with the place. I, I found a I found a place, rented a place. I didn't know a single person in the city. Came back, finished my installation for Art in the Streets. I was really worried about going to the opening. I thought that these guys were gonna be there at the opening. Is that right? Yeah. So I went in disguise to the opening. No, you did not. And what uh, did you wear? I just, you know, I just tried not to look like myself. So that I would see them dude. before they'd see me and I'd be able to get out. <laughs> you know, I got I got to the opening without getting arrested and then I had the, I was being flown to Dublin to go paint in Dublin, and then I had I had the organizers of the event set my ticket up to where I would return from Dublin back to Detroit. You know, it's like the day after the opening, art in the streets. I'm at the airport waiting to go to uh, to Ireland, and I get surrounded by police and sheriffs at the airport at LAX. And they, I guess I was like two days late paying a, a restitution fine. For somebody's property. Yeah, so they they got a warrant for me and they arrested me at LAX and then I ended up, you know, I, I got six months, uh, but I ended up I ended up only doing like maybe forty eight days or something in county jail. I gotta tell you though, that's still like to do that for graffiti it blows my mind. Yeah, I mean, I, I got a, I I'm really lucky to have friends and resources to be able to afford a, yeah. a, a real attorney. A lot of people don't. I mean, when this first happened, their their plea deal offer to me was five years. That was what they that was what they were willing to offer to me was five years. You know, if I hadn't have had the friends like I mentioned and the resources to be able to afford a real attorney, that's You might have taken it. Yeah, that's what I, where I would have been. You know, really make it's really kind of fucked up how much difference it makes in this country. I mean how many people are in prison that shouldn't be there really solely just based on the fact that they couldn't afford a they real attorney. They don't have attorney. any money. Yeah, exactly. So It happens every day. Yeah, yeah. And I've been in there with a lot of these people and heard their stories, and it's, it's, it's fucked up. So you moved to Detroit. I moved to Detroit because, you know, because of those reasons, but also, too, at the it's same— It's a good community. It's, Detroit's an amazing yeah. place. It changed my life, and I, every day I wish I could be back there. I fucking hate L.A. at this point. I'd go back to Detroit tomorrow if my wife was on board. But you're here because of your family. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, at the same time, while I was also dealing with all this, I also started really kind of having ideas that I was really excited about that I wanted to, I really wanted to, to explore. And graffiti stopped being my priority in kind of figuring out how to do this new work that I was really, really excited about was my priority. But it was really, really difficult here in L.A. because I couldn't, A, I couldn't go and rent a space because I would, I would get raided by the police all the time. So, and then also too, you know, it's, it's, it's expensive here and I had a, an expensive lifestyle. So I spent all my time doing all this commercial work to kind of maintain this lifestyle and pay for everything. And it didn't really leave me with the freedom to, to be able to kind of 
start exploring all this new, these new ideas that I wanted to do. So going to Detroit really kind of solved all these problems. It, 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 it let you work in the studio. And yeah, I mean, I could, I could go there and have a massive space. You know that costs nothing. Well, we talked about this a little bit in the car earlier. We were talking about like just being in the studio and making work that doesn't work to get to the point where the stuff that does work. It gave you a chance to like experiment and figure out where you needed to be in your studio practice. Absolutely, absolutely. Right, and that, and that would have been impossible here. That's yeah, why you I wouldn't had have. Leave. You wouldn't have done it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I mean, I had like a two thousand square foot loft there, all utilities paid for a thousand dollars a month. <laughs> so we have talked this a majority of this ninety nine percent of this conversation has been about your career as a graffiti artist. Sure. But your studio practice today, the reason that I sought you out uh-huh. is it's great, man. Well, thank you. I was incredibly impressed when I came over and looked at the work that you're making and seeing the work today in the exhibition here that's in LA right now as well. You are hitting it on all levels. Mm. It feels like the Thank work is much. really, really good. And you're doing this thing where you're able to be successful as having your old career be a part of what your new thing is, but your new thing is wholly different, completely thought out and really developed in a way that most artists could be enviable of. I mean, that, that means everything to me. Thank you. And the fact that you don't come from my world is like the, it, it, it means that much more. Well, it's, it, yeah. Dude, it's like, it's it's on point. But I think, you know what, the, it all harkens back to this idea of just spending time in the studio making work. Yeah. And yeah. you are, I can tell, like when I came over too, you're in there all the time. Yeah. People need to respect the amount of energy and time you put into that work. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, in the respect and the admiration is very much mutual. Well, so thank you thank so much, you. man. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Another thing, too, is when I was looking at your Instagram, like family is really important to you. Mm-hmm. I can tell that we're on sort of the same connection as far as where you're at in your career, but also where you're at in your family. Making things work long term, everything put together. And it's just admirable to see somebody who is doing it on all levels all the time. Well, kids, uh, kids definitely change your perspective. They make it real, put- real <laughs> fucking quick, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Jason, thank you so much for coming. On the thank show, you, man. Jason. Yeah, man. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. 